relate to uh, what Kenny said um, this morning. As he was saying, he uh, longed to, to be in church the last few weeks, and just uh, circumstances as such uh, changed that. Um, that's a good. That's a good desire, by the way. We have that desire that uh, that shows uh, that uh, you know we want to meet with the Lord Jesus Christ and with God's people, and that's a that's a precious thing. I think all of us, uh, you know, as we think about uh, what it is going to be when we sit down with Jesus uh, when He comes again, and that's what we want to think about in Luke chapter 14. I I was going to do Philippians and. Uh, the week before, two weeks before, the lights went out, so I had Philippians on my mind. And then I said, okay, well, I'll preach. I got a message ready, and then it was like, I can't preach that message because we're going to do communion. And uh, Luke 14 came to mind. And we're going to be talking uh, about Luke 14, about the, the parable of the great banquet or the great gospel feast. And, um, and just think about what uh, preparations uh, go into a wedding. Uh, you can imagine. I mean, most of, uh, most of us guys don't have to do a whole lot other than show up. Uh, but, uh, you know, if you plan a wedding, typically you don't do that uh, the week before. Uh, you don't do it uh, two weeks before. You usually are probably with six to nine, sometimes a year, sometimes longer, depending on um, when the... Uh, uh, when that uh, wedding is being announced. But typically, there's a lot of planning goes into a wedding. But what's beautiful about the, the gospel is that God's been planning a wedding feast for his son before the foundation of the world. So you can imagine what preparation has gone into that wedding feast that we're going to be at. Uh, uh, Revelation 19 talks about that wedding feast and what it's going to be like. We're going to be there. And uh, it's going to be a glorious feast and so uh, Jesus is uh, dealing with that in the Gospels because he wants us to not be uh, misled by, uh, you know, there's a lot of, the, you know, some, some people that Jesus was dealing with thought that they were going to be there just because they themselves were worthy. And what Jesus wants to point out in the Gospels is that the only people that really are at the wedding feast are people that are unworthy. It's, it's really for sinners who, who acknowledge their sinfulness. But in uh, this particular parable, it's a, it's a wonderful parable. And so I want to turn there in, in Luke chapter 14. And we're going to be picking up um, with verse 15. Now, I'll, I'll kind of, we'll go into a little bit of the, the background. Because Jesus, uh, Jesus uh, comes to this, uh, he's invited to dinner at a, a, uh, uh, a man's house, probably a Pharisee or a religious leader. And uh, before he gets there or while he's there, he uh, heals a man on the Sabbath day. So he offends the Pharisees, number one. Then he comes to the dinner and he tells the guests that are coming, he says, don't take the best seats in the house. Just take the lower seats and then be asked to take up an, another seat if you're asked to do that. So he offends the guests. And then he offends uh, the host of the dinner because he tells the host of the dinner, well, you know, you shouldn't just invite people that can pay you back. You should invite people that really can't pay you back. So he, he kind of, you can imagine the scene at this point is a little uncomfortable. And, um, you know, and, and one of the men, one of the, the, one of the people in this uh, particular parable, which will begin in verse 16, in verse 15, he, I, I'm sure, is probably wanting to break the ice. You know, when everything's been said and everybody's kind of on edge, okay, what else is Jesus going to say? Uh, this man blurts the, uh, this out in verse 15. 
when one of those who reclined at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, and I think he's basically saying, let's talk about something that everybody will agree on here. Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And, uh, and at that point, everyone should have said, amen, now let's change the topic and let's go to something else so that we, we don't end up in, a, in a, any uh, fisticuff here. Uh, but Jesus doesn't stop there. Notice what he says in verse 16. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet. He invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, for everything's now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. Another said, I have bought the five yoke of oxen and I go examine them. Please have me excused. And he said to another, I have married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city. Bring in the poor, the crippled, and blind and lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you have commanded has been done. And still there is room. And the master said to his servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those who men who were invited shall taste my banquet. And may the Lord... Add his uh, blessing to the reading of his word this morning. So let's pray. Father, we come into your presence. And uh, Lord, this is uh, not only a a time to reflect on uh, the banquet that uh, you have planned from the beginning of the world uh, to honor your son. But also, Father, it is a time when we will again uh, renew in some ways, renew our vows even before God as we come to the table and we remember the covenant that you have made with us through your, the shedding of uh, the blood of Christ, your son, your only son. And Father, as we meditate on these, these words of uh, Christ this morning, I, I pray, Father, that you would uh, just open our eyes more clearly to everything that's going on in this text. Uh, Father, not only the, the invitation, not only the excuses, Lord, not only the, uh, the persistence of uh, God's uh, God's invitation, but uh, also, Lord, the, the is- irresistible uh, power of God in his plan to uh, fill his house with those that are going to uh, participate and enjoy uh, the blessing of this banquet. And so, Father, may, we, uh, may you use this in our time together, Father, to help us as we come to the table and as we drink together and as we, uh, as we break bread together in fellowship with not only the Father, but the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I kind of uh, wanted to, to kind of give that brief introduction just to kind of give you an idea of the setting. Uh, because in this, time, this particular time, people thought differently about who was going to be in the kingdom of God and not. In fact, uh, Isaiah 25 talks about uh, the Feast of the Messiah and, uh, and these are the words that I, uh, Isaiah 25, uh, Isaiah uh, speaks of. And the reason I want to mention this text, it's in verses 6 through 9, is because the Jews had a particular view as to who's going to be at that feast. And we want to talk about that because that's what Jesus is confronting here. Because the key to this passage, really, interpretation of this passage is verse 15. The guy's saying, look, 
I know I'm going to be there, and blessed is everyone that's going to be there. And so he has this kind of attitude. And so, uh, but on this mountain, it says in verse 6 of Isaiah 25, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all the peoples a feast of rich food, a feast with well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, and of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And that's a glorious promise of the Old Testament. I mean, that was something that people were looking forward to. It was like, wow, you know, I, I can't wait for the Messianic priest, the, the feast. So when Jesus comes, you would think, okay, here's the Messiah. The people began, at first, many of the people, the common people, gladly heard him. But many of the religious people were basically really irritated and they didn't really want to do what Jesus was saying and that is repent and believe the gospel. I mean that was the that was the problem. And so um, so some of the the interpretation of that time was that the people that were going to get into the to the banquet was mainly one group of people and that was good good Jews. They had to be religious Jews. They had to follow the law, the ceremonial law to it to the T. And uh, in fact, in, in one of the one of the the targum, which was one, like an Ara, the Aramaic translation of some of the Old Testament, it was like their it was kind of like their uh, it would be kind of like our Living Bible translation, a little loose translation. But they basically said the only people that are going to be there are good Jews, and uh, those are the the ceremonial religious Jews. And then later on, uh, when um, and they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, a lot of the, the Jews at that time said the only people, not even the, the crippled, the blind, uh, and uh, those who were sick Jews would get in. It was just, it was, only, it was only one group of Jews that would get in, and they had to be very, very particular. They were very separatistic. And so, sir, so there was this, this view that only certain people got in, but there were a lot of people that were shut out, and particularly they said Gentiles wouldn't be in there which would be most of us, if not all of us. None of us Gentiles would be in there. So, so their, their view was uh, especially uh, was that the Jew, I mean, kind of like you could think of it, the poor and the crippled were the, were the outcasts. And then you had the outsiders who were dogs, and those were the Gentiles. That would be us. So their view of the kingdom of God was pretty narrow. It was pretty, I would say it was very exclusive. It was very... Uh, narrow, and, and you had to you had to be a certain uh, you had to be a certain brand, if you will, in order for them for them to accept you, and so that's what Jesus is dealing with here. But what he does is he gives a parable because a parable kind of is a way of giving a lesson that would direct their their would cause them to question some of the, their thinking as far as who is going to be saved and who's not going to be saved. And so what Jesus does, you notice in verse, um, in Luke chapter 14, in verse 16, he, got, he picks up there and he says, he, he says to them, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. In other words, this is, a, this is a, 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 something that the whole community would have known about. And as he gives this banquet, it says that he, at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say that those who had been invited come, for everything is now ready. So what would happen in the ancient Near East is that you would send out your invitation, much like we do today, and people would do what? 
they had RSVP, right? They'd say, we're coming. So all these people that he's invited are people that said, we're coming, we'll be there. You can bet on that, we're coming, we're going to be there. And so when he sends out the second invitation is what, what happens here in verse 17, is that he says to the servant, now go out and tell them, hey, the supper's ready. Because he knows by the RSVP, what? How much food to prepare, where you're going to have the wedding, right? You, you know, you have to have a big enough space, and, and you have to know uh, what, if you can afford the food and so forth and everything. And so this, so this man, is, is, uh, he sent it out, and now he's saying everything is ready, but then the response that he gets is almost insulting, really, because they've already told him they're coming, right? Yeah, 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 I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Uh, and he's ready for this, but he's already prepared. He's, he's killed the, you know, the, the animals. He's, he's prepared all the food. Everything is all ready. You know, uh, can you imagine the cost of this banquet to Jesus or to the Father. It was a very costly wedding. Um, one of the, probably the, I was looking this up, but the most costly wedding that was ever um, was the wedding of uh, Diana and Prince Charles. Remember? I don't know if, if you, you know, if you remember that. 1981, it cost $110 million. Now, uh, that is an expensive wedding. That's the, probably the most expensive wedding that's ever taken place. Uh, she had a hundred pearls on her gown. I mean, her train would probably fill the the church, you know, as they brought it in. She ca- she arrived in a glass a glass uh, what would you call it a carriage a glass carriage, and uh, there were 750 million people that saw that on television. Now, can you imagine being invited to being one of the guests to that and saying? I know I told you I'd be there, but, you know, something else came up. <laughs> I don't think you would ever get an invite. In fact, you probably would have to go into hiding. Uh, that would not be a nice thing to do. But think about what God has done. He has been preparing for this banquet with his son. And think about when God gave the promise to Adam and Eve. He says that through the woman's seed that God would crush the head of Satan, Right? And that he was going to send his son and that through the woman. So there would be this Messiah who would be born. And then you have Abraham and the promise coming through Abraham's line. Then you have everything that takes place in the Old Testament. God sending his prophets to the people, telling them, prepare, prepare, prepare. And then Jesus comes and then there's rejection and there's crucifixion. And then he sends the apostles and he sends the disciples and he sends us out to tell people, come and what? Come and eat freely. Come and eat. Come to the feast. Isaiah 55, come, to, you know, come. If you're thirsty, come and drink uh, from the fountain. And so all of this preparation God's done, and what it, what it exemplifies for us is the extravagant love that God has gone to to prepare this feast for us. So when we come to the table even, we're not just coming to a common table because those elements, those elements represent everything that God has done through sending his son to die on the cross for us. It represents your reconciliation. It represents, it represents your forgiveness. It's a picture of everything that Christ has done for us on the cross. And so God has been preparing that. And what it does for us is to tell us that God spared no expense. 
It took the death of his son in order for us to be here this morning. It took the death of his son for us to even be able to partake of the table. That that table doesn't just represent something that we remember, but it points to the reality that's behind that table. Every promise that God's ever made is contained at that table to us. And so as we, as we think about that and prepare, even now, preparing to come to this table, it's, it's saying like the, God, God is saying through all of Scripture, he's saying, I want to sit down and feast with you. Isn't that cool? That God says, I want to fellowship with you. So if you invited someone to a table feast in the ancient Near East, you were basically saying, hey, we're friends. We're, and, and if we had any issues, those are forgiven, those are pardoned. We're reconciled to sit down at the table meant, hey, we're having fellowship. We, we are interacting. We are, we are friends at this table. And so what happens, however, is that the three, at least three examples here were given make excuses. And the excuses offered are really empty when you stop to think about it. Notice the first excuse. Um, let's just notice that in verse, uh, I think it's verse 18 here. But they all like began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. Now, if you didn't know of anything, most of us, if you're going to buy a house, do you just buy it without looking at it? In fact, if you're going to buy land, you're probably going to find, want to find out if that land is productive. Is, is this land that I'm buying in the desert? You, you wouldn't do that. It would be like uh, guys, you telling your wife, uh, calling her up and saying, I'm going to be late for dinner, honey. Uh, I just bought a house over the phone. I've written the check, and I'm just going over to see, make, make sure it's not, you know, a, a two-room hut, you know, out in the middle of uh, some fishing site that I like. You know, it, that, that's not going to go over very well. I mean, it's just, you know, the, the, the checks are in the mail. Honey, I've already written the, the check. I've got to go over and see it. That just doesn't make sense here. These, the person that's actually bought the land has been talking about this and working through this deal for some time. And so that's kind of a flimsy excuse. And then the second person says, I bought five yoke of oxen and I need to go out and test them. I need to go out and t- try them out. I mean, it'd be like buying a, five cars without knowing whether they have an engine or not. You know, it's just, these are, these are excuses that, that Jesus is saying people are giving him because here the dinner is ready. It's time to go. Look, you can, you know, you just don't buy, you don't buy oxen unseen because they have to be equally yoked. They have to be able to pull together, right? Um, and so you don't do that. And, uh, and so there's this, this, uh, this urgency to come to the dinner, but then there's this thing like, well, you know, I've got something else better to do. I've got to try out my oxen, basically saying. If you buy five cars, I need to, ride, I need to drive my cars around. I've got, I've got things to do, places to go, people to see. And then notice the third excuse, and you say, well, now that does seem a little bit more. But notice what he says here. He says, I have married a wife. I would think if you put there, I married the wife. Not a wife, a wife. Anyway, and therefore, I cannot come. He doesn't even ask to be excused. Now, again, the, the point is, is the, all of these excuses are excuses that, you know, we would say, well, you know, maybe there's some validity in these. But in reality, they, they, once you've told them RSVP, you can't just turn it down. It was, it was like in the ancient Near East to turn down 
a dinner that you've already said you'd be at would be like a declaration of war. That's, that's how serious it was. Remember when Abraham, three visitors, came to his tent? What did he do? He immediately killed the, the, the animals, and he feasted with what? He feasted with God there. It was, at least one of them was the angel of the Lord and two of the other guests. Uh, but the, que- the excuses basically are really flimsy because they're basically saying to, to the host, really, I have more important priorities than the priorities that you have. For me. I mean, it's, 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 it's really a picture or the attitude they really have towards God. It's like saying this, um, Lord, I've got a lot to do, and you're going to have to be put on hold. Now, have you, any of us ever been put on hold? Now, I mean, if you ever had to call Social Security up for anything, I mean, that, that is the worst. I mean, you know, you're sitting there. And uh, uh, just, just a minute, and, you know, you're... Hour and a half later, you know, you're just fuming. But it's putting God on hold. I mean, you think this, how serious this is. These excuses are flimsy. They're, they're saying that there's more important priorities in life than my soul. What shall it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose their own soul? And they're saying that the material things of this world, whatever it is, all the things that just, I mean, think about all the things in our life that get out of priority. And all of a sudden, those things began to say, well, you know, this is more important, and this is important. Well, I've got to do this, and I've got to... And yet, some way, God some way gets squeezed out. God gets squeezed out, and it's, 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 it's unfortunate that we, we think that way, but yet what it's really saying to God is that there's some things in life that are more important than my soul. And that's what Jesus is trying to get at because this guy's thinking, I'm in just because I do everything right. And Jesus says, that doesn't really mean anything. The people that are in are the people that realize that, look, I'm unworthy to be there. I'm unworthy because I don't, because I really am a sinner and my soul is in desperate need of a Savior. And I need, I need the bread That picture of the bread broken is I need everything that Christ did for me on the cross. I'm such a sinner. I can't save myself. And without him being broken, in other words, him being broken on the cross, him suffering in my place, there is no hope for me. I can't initiate my salvation by my good works, by my efforts, by all the things that I do. And so this, is, this, this, this main point that Jesus is making here in this parable is those excuses are insults. They're insults to God. They're insults to everything that Christ has done. The things that keep us from, some people said, some things that keep us from the kingdom are not the things that we don't have, it's the things we have. The things that, that get in the way, that, that take priority, that, that, that just push God to the, to the boundaries of our life. And all of a sudden we find ourselves, you know, people would say, well, you know, I'm feeling cold in my relationship with God. A lot of times this is because we've allowed life to push God to the boundaries. We'll feel cold. And that's a good thing. Why? Because God's saying, look, I take first place. The thing God hates the worst is idolatry. Anything that we put before God as a priority is idolatry. It's something that we repent of. It's, it's, it's something that God, God hates. He hates idolatry. In fact, and you're, going to, uh, you're going through James and James chapter 4. It says the Holy Spirit is angry. He's jealous for your love and your affection. 
He wants your affection. And he wants it to be first. It's like not, you can't say, well, you know, I have, Lord, I've got another lover that's, that's more important than you. He says, no, I'm, I'm first place in your life. Um, and so what, what this text is really, is really kind of driving is to say that God's preached by this wonderful banquet for you and I. In fact, every time the gospel's preached, by the way, it's a banquet. Because it's declaring to you God's forgiveness, God's pardon, God's reconciliation. It's declaring to you that God is justified through faith in Jesus Christ alone. It's a declaration of all the blessings and benefits of the gospel. God's sparing no expense. Uh, think about what's on the menu. Now, ladies, you, I, you always think about menus, right? <laughs> now, you've already got a menu for what we're going to eat afterwards. And you've got a menu for what we're going to eat yeah, a month, you know, uh, at uh, Easter. But think of what God's put on his menu. Now, it's not physical food, but think about it. Reconciliation with God, access to God in prayer 24-7. It's, 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 it's a 24-7 it's a hotline to God. I mean, think about justification by faith, which means that God declares us righteous based on the righteousness of his son. It means that we're, our sins, which are red as grimsome, now God says is whiter than snow. It, it, that's on his menu. The forgiveness of sins, the joy of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the fruits of the Holy Spirit, the regener regeneration, faith and repentance, all of that's on the menu. And you're going like, oh, I need all of that, right? I need sanctification. I need glorification. It's going to come. It's, it's, it, th th this table is basically saying it's going to happen. You're going to be raised from the dead physically. And you're going like, wow. You mean all of that's, that's what, when we take, partake of the table, God is saying, look, it's all real. It's all real. It's, it's, it's a beautiful picture of that menu that God's serving us. And then he's saying to us, by the way, it's all free. All you have to do is believe. No money. Don't bring any money. Don't insult, don't insult the host. I mean, can you imagine going to the, wait, I want to pay for this wedding. Well, it's $120 million. I mean, whew. What's my portion? <laughs> What's my percentage? I try to figure that one out. I'd have to bring my calculator and then I'd have to leave. Uh, you know, the, the, so this is a great banquet. And what's beautiful about it is that the, the, that the host doesn't get so angry because of the first group that turns him down. What's he do? He, sa he, gets, he sends him out again and he says, go out into the, what does he say here? No, notice, so come on, he says, he comes back to him there in, um, um, in four, Luke 14, my, my Bible skipped. Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. I mean, isn't that an extraordinary grace that God is showing? And who is he showing it to? He's showing it to the outcast. In fact, they said the poor and the crippled, the poor and the crippled and the lame couldn't even come into the temple. Did you realize that? And what does Jesus do when he cleanses the temple on Palm Sunday? The crippled, the lame, and the poor come into the temple. He says, look, this house is for them too. Isn't that amazing? 
And then, I mean, so, so here it is. And then not only that, later on he's going to say, now go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in. You know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to probably, they're probably going to be thinking, like, why would you invite me? Why would, you, why would you invite me? And he's basically saying, you're going to have to convince them that God really wants us there. And we're the Gentiles here in this passage. We're the people that are the, in the highways. And God is saying, I want you to let them know that I want them there. So when we share the gospel with someone, we're telling them God wants you there. He's, I mean, in fact, Paul will say this. He says, he says, I beg you. And he begs them by what? By the, by the humility and by the kindness of God. He says, I urge you to be reconciled to God. That, that word there is I, as, as I, this idea of God. It's, it's, it's God's apostle compelling, begging, urging people to come. Because it's going to be a wonderful banquet. And what it represents is everything that, that God through, throughout eternity past has been planning for us. And we get to be not only the guest, but we get to be a part of that. You know, God has chosen, it says, 1 Corinthians 1.26, what is foolish to shame the wise. God's chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing. Those things that are, uh, that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. So those are, in other words... The idea there of God, that God even uh, invites the people that are not or nothing, it just basically says that nobody's. You know, it's not their reputation. It's not their accomplishments. That's, that's grace. That's the grace that comes to us in the gospel. And that's why God says, compel them to come in. Um, can you imagine being invited to this feast now? Let's just say, ladies, uh, you get invited to the governor's mansion next week because he's got a special ceremony that he wants you to be at. And I know the first thing you're going to ask, you say is, I don't have anything to wear. <laughs> Guess what? At God's banquet, he provides the wedding dress. You don't buy that. It's too expensive. That wedding dress was purchased by the blood of Jesus. It's too expensive and you can't pay for it. And every guest that's there gets to come in the dress that God provides. And that dress is the righteousness of his son. That's what justification is. Justified by faith. And you're going like, but there has to be more. Yes, there is more. It's called adoption. (laughs) You're a child and son of God. It's called glorification. You're going to be like Jesus. All of those things are a part of this wedding feast. And God wants us there. And God's going to ensure that everyone that he wants there will be there. Do you know that? We know that in verse 23. Notice what he says. And the master said to the servant, go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. Now, think about this. The only people that are going to be in that house that God is feeling at this wedding feast are the people that he draws himself. You know why? Left to ourselves, none of us would go. 
We're dead in trespasses and sins. A dead person can't respond. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. And God does something, and it's called irresistible grace. And what God does is that God tells us, come, he gives us life. And that life that he gives through the Holy Spirit, that's called regeneration or born again, is what enables us to repent and believe the gospel. You're saying, but I thought I did that on my own. You did, but God gave you a willingness that you didn't have before he saved you. See, that's the beauty of irresistible grace. And you go like, and, and then what does that do? I can't boast in anything that I've done for God except for the fact that God gave me what he asked, he asked from me. He, gave, he gives me faith and repentance. In fact, uh, Acts chapter 13 verse 48 is one of my favorite verses when I, when I talk about uh, God's irresistible grace. Is all those who are ordained for eternal life believe the message when Paul preached it. End of story. Romans 8, 28, what? You know, those whom God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he what? He called irresistible grace. And those he called, he what? Justified. And those he justified, and these are all past tense, by the way. And those he justified, he glorified. He just skipped sanctification. He says, look, if you're going to justify, you're going to get glorified. Sanctification is going to happen. You say, I know, but I struggle. Yeah. We'll read the Psalms. Every believer that's a believer is going to struggle. If you don't struggle, you, you know, I mean, you're not living in the world that I'm living in because the world is, not, is a stranger to grace, right? We're a stranger to the gospel. And struggle is a part of that. Struggling, I mean, sometimes discouragement and, and, and even depression and, and all of those things that many of us have gone through. All of those things are things that, that faith deals with, it wrestles with. That's what James is about, wrestling. Your faith wrestling with God. Wrestling to believe all those promises that God's made to us. And what's amazing about this promise is if God left the decision entirely to you and I, this place would be empty. Every church would be empty. There wouldn't be anybody at the wedding feast, but God says it's going to be full. And he guarantees it by what? It's called God's grace in the gospel, being preached. That's why, you know, when I go out uh, and I've shared the gospel with people, I don't go trying to say, well, you know, if I give them the best argument that I can, they'll be saved. You just give them the gospel. And the gospel has to bring people to repentance. The Holy Spirit uses the word, that's the means of grace, and he, then he, he draws them to himself. I love this, uh, this one verse in uh, one of the hymns, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. And it says this, let not, conscience, uh, let not conscience make you linger, nor the fitness that, uh, that you think God requires. All the fitness that God requires is to feel your need of him. And notice this, and this he gives you by the Spirit's rising beam. What fitness does God require of you and me? The fitness that he requires is that we see that we need the Lord. And we, when we see that, and guess what? In this, he gives you. <laughs> he gives you the ability to see your lost condition and your need of a Savior. And that's why we call upon the name of the Lord. I mean, Paul was, was killing Christians. God 
God came and blinded him. He's on the ground. He's fuming, mad, angry at God and at Christians. And the next thing you know, Paul is believing in the gospel. And you're going, like, how did that happen? Well, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> the gospel came and Paul, it just broke Paul. And Paul began to see, I'm a sinner. And man, I am the chief of sinners. I'm going to hell. I'm lost. I need Jesus. And guess what? The Holy Spirit also opened his eyes to the cross and to the, and to the forgiveness. That's, that's the beauty of the gospel. You know, one uh, songwriter, uh, we know this hymn. We sung it here probably many times, Just As I Am. It was written by a girl named uh, Charlotte Elliott, and she was a carefree... Uh, she was basically an artist and a writer of prose in England. But at the age of 30, she contracted a serious illness, and the illness left her crippled for life. And she became kind of listless, depressed, until uh, one day this evangelist came and said, Charlotte, you must come to Jesus just as you are. A sinner coming to the Lamb of God who takes away your sins. And she, at that time, placed her trust in, the, in Christ. And she wrote this hymn, Just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was what shed for me, and that thou biddest come to me. O Lamb of God, I come, I come. God opened her eyes. Now she could, you know, she was, and, and you know, he, didn't, he didn't necessarily heal her at that point, but at that point in her life, her soul was healed, and she came. And she wrote that hymn that we have sung and probably has sung. It's been sung probably all over the world hundreds of times. And so uh, just a couple of words of ex exhortation here that I had on closing because I realized, oop, I didn't even realize. I didn't look at my watch. You, you didn't, you didn't ha ask me to come to be state of supply because I watched my watch. and I hope not. But anyway, a few, just a couple of words of application here. One is an exhortation um, to, to God's people. That notice that last verse, he says, but I tell because there's warning here, for I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. So the question is, did that servant go out? And the exhortation to Christians is that we share this message with others, right? It's the message that people need to hear. It's not... Better not better political leaders, although we would like those. It's not better economics, although we would appreciate some better economic uh, reports, right? Because really, what's what's really at the heart and at the at really running the world is that we have a sovereign God, and He bring He He put He lifts up Nebuchadnezzar's and does what to him? He throws. And the issue really isn't about economics and about political leaders and about power. The real issue is about God who's in control. And what America needs is true revival, right? We need truly our hearts turned back to God. That he's the priority, not, not, not secondary. It's not God, uh, wait a minute, I got, I'm putting you on hold right now. God, God doesn't, that, that's an insult to God. You know, we're invited for that feast. And one of the things about this supper is that it's a picture of everything that Jesus has done for you. I, it was one of the things, the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is just really uh, an expression of what the Bible teaches. But it says there that, it's a, that, the, that the table is a representation pointing you to all the, the benefits of the gospel. Everything Jesus has done 
in the gospel are pictured here for you. If you could think of it like this, it's a label. Now, now some of you guys, I know all the ladies have this, when you go to the store and you've got a list and it has three cans of green beans. Now, when you go to the shelf, what do you look for? You look for the green beans. And how do you identify if you're getting green beans or not? You look at the label, don't you? And that label, for some reason, gives you some assurance. Now, what if you went to the store and got the green beans, or you, you asked for the green beans in all the cans, there were no labels? And there's a clerk standing there. Which are the, which are the green beans? I think it's the one on the left, so down on the far end. Okay, uh, you sure? Those don't look like green beans because the ones I get were, you know, this size. Well, no, I'm sure that that is. Well, I think it was. That was where we put them the last time, but, you know, I'm not really sure. Well, I think I'm pretty sure they are. You can get those three cans. How assured are you that those are green beans when you open them? Probably yams. Now, I like yams, but there's, you know, but there's other things I like too. But anyway, the point is, is that what? As we come to the table, the table is God's label. We know what the table... That's why he says do this often because it's God's way of saying, look, when you see this, just remember that it took the sacrifice and the death of Christ to provide all the blessings of your salvation. And he gives them to you freely. And that's his label. It's his guarantee. It's it's like him saying, I'm faithful to everything that that table represents and I've never lied. You know, Titus even has to tell people, you know, some of the people who, who came to Christ, he says, for God doesn't lie. You wouldn't think you'd have to tell people that, but God doesn't. And, and so, that, so that's, that's the beauty of this table. And that's what God invites us to this morning as we, uh, or this afternoon, so that we just passed 12, if you were watching. You know, um, there was a man who was a rich shipbuilder, and uh, he was visited by a, a Christian friend, and he had the man ask him this question, what's the state of your soul? And the man said, why, I have enough to do taking care of my ships. But you know, he wasn't too busy to die. He died the next week. You know, it's, uh, we, don't, we don't have control over that. You know, it's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And so the warning in this text, I think in verse 25, is this, is that don't reject the offer. <laughs> you know, if, if you know, I, I don't know everyone here, but if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and doesn't know that, I mean, then, you know, the day is the day of salvation, right? It's always, it's always the day. It's always God saying, this is the day. He, and, and, and every time the gospel's preached, that's God's invitation keeps going out. But someday that invitation will stop because the, the wedding... The wedding feast is going to be full. And Jesus has come back and he's taken his bride. And what's beautiful about this is not only are we the guests, we are the bride there. Because the dress he provides is the wedding dress. It's the righteousness of Christ. Now, I know it's hard for us men to think of us wearing a wedding dress. But we are the bride of Christ. And he's provided the dress for us to be there. That righteousness of Christ Yes, I'm an unworthy sinner, but I have a Savior who provides everything I need for my salvation. And so um, let, us, let us reflect on that as we come to the table and let us give thanks to God that everything that he promises he's provided 
in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, wonderful feast that we are about to partake of and then the fellowship meal afterwards. We ask now, Lord, that you would minister to each need here today. And Lord, if there's anyone here that doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, that you said everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Lord, that's your certain word and promise to everyone who believes. And so may it be so, Lord, even as the message goes out and as the invitation goes out, come, come to the wedding feast. And Father, may we rejoice in the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who made it all possible. In his name we pray.